This morning we're going to do things a little different, but I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 12 is where we're going to start. Rather than reading the whole text before we get started, I'm going to read it as we go. Okay, it's kind of a longer passage and I think this will help us track with it better and kind of follow along. So I want you to have and keep your Bibles open to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. And again, we're going to start in verse 12 in just a few minutes. But before we get started, because I want to help set us up so that when we hear it, we hear it well, and we've got, the right, we've got the right lens on to see the text, I want to ask a question of you. The question is simple. How many of you were driven here this morning? I got some hands, okay. Now, before you answer... I need to clarify two things. First, bear in mind that I didn't ask how many of you drove here, but how many were driven. So some of you might change your answer there. Second, when I say driven, I don't mean were you a passenger in a car. What I mean is was there something in your mind or your heart that drove you to come to church this morning? And whether you realize it or not, the answer is yes. All of us were driven here this morning by one thing. The same thing, in fact. The desire to be happy. Why did you come to church this morning? Because you want to be happy. Now, I will be honest, for some of us, what we perceive as that happiness might look different. Some of you might have come looking for happiness just by seeing certain people, that you really are excited to go see that friend, and that's why you're like, I'm going to go to church because I get to see them. Some of you came looking for happiness because going to church is the right thing, and like you feel like, I couldn't be happy if I knew I wasn't doing what I'm supposed to, so I'm going to do what I'm supposed to, and I'm going to be there, and that's a way I'll find happiness. Some of you came looking for happiness because you're like, I love songs. I love the songs we sing and I just want to go sing. I don't get to do it that much throughout the week with people. That's why I'm coming. Some of you, one of you maybe wanted to come hear a sermon. Thank you, Anna, for being here. Some of you, if you're honest, only came because you were looking for happiness by making someone else happy. You came because mom said so or dad said so or your friends said so. Or maybe your spouse. But whatever shape happiness looks like for you in coming, I know that you are here in your pew this morning because you seek happiness. How do I know that? Because seeking happiness is why we do everything we do. As creatures, we are made to pursue joy and satisfaction. That's why every single person you'll ever meet seeks happiness. Listen to this quote from the 18th century French philosopher Blaise Pascal. Here's what he said. All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man. So do you hear his point? He's saying that 
every single thing we do, we do because we think it will make us happy or provide satisfaction. Now, if you're like me, you always want to try to poke a hole in it. You say, okay, but what about when I do the things that I don't like? Like, what about when I go exercise? I don't like that. Or what about when I diet? I really don't like that. Well, you do that because you think the benefits of doing that thing will make you happy. Okay, but what about the things where I'm not really thinking about me. I'm thinking about somebody else. I do it for my kids or I I do it for a friend. That doesn't count, right? Well, you do that because you think making them happy will make you happy. This is what drives us. Just like if you were driven here in a car, you were carried along by the power of the car. In the same way, satisfaction is what drives us everywhere we go and in everything we do. It's why you go to work or why you don't. It's why you marry the person you did. It's why you choose the food you do on a menu. It's why you go to bed early or stay up late. It's why you choose the clothes you have on. It's why you chose to sit where you are. It's why you chose to do what you'll do after the service. It's everything. Every action of every person is driven by our pursuit of satisfaction. And our passage this morning is all about that pursuit. It's about trying to find out what is it in life that will lead to happiness. But before we get to that pursuit, let me remind you of a couple things we saw last week as we started the book. We're still kind of easing our way into Ecclesiastes. So if you remember from last week, the governing idea of the whole book is found in chapter 1, verse 2. There at the end it says, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Now, we talked last week about how that word vanity is the Hebrew word hevel, and it refers to smoke or vapor or breath. And every time we see that word vanity, we're meant to remember three things about life. Do you remember this? Remember, to remember that it's fleeting, just like a breath on a cold morning, gone. It's out of our control, like trying to grab onto smoke. You can't get your hands around it. And third, it's mysterious. It's something that we can't fully understand. And as the preacher, as the the speaker in this book, as the preacher ponders this fleeting, out of control, and mysterious life, he wants to know the answer to a question in chapter 1, verse 3. This is the question he's trying to run down in the whole first half of the book. And that question is, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? In other words, in this lifetime, what profit or benefit is there in all the ways that I'm working so hard in life? Where can we find real and lasting gain in this world? Last week then, the preacher helped us come to grips with this fact that the world is stuck in a repetitive loop. It's like somebody just put repeat one and it's just going loop, loop, loop. Sun goes up. Sun goes down, sun goes up, sun goes down. People born, people die. People born, people die. He showed us that things are always changing and yet always staying the same. And because of that, we talked about how we long for both permanence in a world of change and we also long for something new to break the cycle of monotonous vanity. And yet, we saw there's nothing new under the sun. So now, armed with that reality, we come to our passage this morning. And in this passage, 
The preacher is going to set out on a quest. He is on a quest to see, is there really nothing to be gained under the sun? Is everything really just vanity? Because just like us, the preacher, what he's looking for is what will bring him happiness. He wants to understand life to know what will truly satisfy us. And as he explores this question, he conducts four experiments to see if there is real satisfaction to be found in any of these. So go ahead and throw the slide up there for our outline. So here are the four things that he tests to see if they offer the gain of true and lasting satisfaction. He's going to test wisdom. He's going to test pleasure. He's going to test wise living. Then he's going to test possessions. And finally at the end, we're going to see his conclusion. The answer. Okay, so that's where we're going. So now take your Bibles and read along with me here. We're going to start in chapter 1, verse 12. I'm going to read to verse 18. He says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that is done under the sun. And behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. And what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Okay, so let's stop there. So in verse 13, he tells us what his first experiment is. He says that he's going to seek and search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. Just like a simple undertaking, right? He's thinking maybe the answer to life lies in wisdom. That seems like a good place to start. So then he says he's going to give himself wholeheartedly to this task. He's not dipping his toe in. He's all in saying, I'm going to apply my heart to this pursuit. And he's going to use wisdom to explore and study the goings-on of this world to try to get to the bottom. I'm going to use wisdom to look at everything that's happening to try to get to the bottom of where is satisfaction? Where can I find it? And it's going to be a comprehensive study, right? Do you notice he's going to look at all that is done under heaven? It's not limited to this area of life or that area of life. He says, I'm going to look at everything. I'm going to find this. As he does this comprehensive, wholehearted study, he quickly realizes, though, that this quest isn't an easy or enjoyable one. It's an unhappy business to try to understand all that happens in the world using only his limited human wisdom. In other words, as a preacher is trying to wrap his mind around life, it quickly becomes a frustrating task. And I think we can resonate with that, right? Like even our own little lives and our, and our half-hearted attempts to try to understand every life, <laughs> I don't get it. Like I, I don't understand life sometimes. And after he's used wisdom to look at all of life, he finds that rather than unlocking the secret to satisfaction, here's the conclusion it led him to. All is vanity. All of it 
is just fleeting. All of it's just out of his control. All of it's mysterious and hard to get his mind around. And then he adds this new phrase. This is going to show up several times in the book. He says this effort to use his wisdom to understand life is a striving after wind. This is another one of those key phrases in Ecclesiastes. Just like last week we talked about all is vanity and talked about under the sun. This is one of those we've got to get our heads around for us to to know what's going on in the book. So the root of the word for striving here is the word for shepherding. For shepherding. And so what a lot of commentators believe the sense of this word means is it means to, that it's like trying to shepherd the wind, right? So what do you do when you shepherd sheep? You guide them, you control them, you make sure that they go where they're supposed to. Well, just like a shepherd guides and directs sheep, he's saying trying to find satisfaction through using our wisdom would be like trying to guide and direct and control the wind. Now, I don't know if you've tried it, but it can't be done. Every time you think you you grab a hold of it, get back here, it slips through your fingers. Shepherding the wind is an impossible task. And that's what the proverb in verse 15 is meant to reinforce. He says, some things are so crooked and bent, they can't be straightened out. And you can't count what's not there. Right? I want you guys to quickly count how many people are not here this morning. Go ahead, take your time. You can't do it. And that's his whole point. The same way, trying to use our wisdom to understand life and to find satisfaction through that, he's like, it can't be done. It's just as easy as counting the people that aren't here this morning. So from there, the preacher shifts a little bit. He's still talking wisdom. But now, instead of He was talking about studying life by wisdom. Now he's studying wisdom itself in verses 16 to 18. So what we see is that he acquires more wisdom, more knowledge than anyone else. He seeks as much learning as he can get because education is the answer, right? He gets into the best schools. He's got a wall full of degrees. He's read all the books, watched all the YouTube videos. He's tried to learn his way to satisfaction. And yet, what's the result? He said, this also is just like trying to shepherd the wind. Because the more he knew, the more sorrowful he became. Now, why would that be? We would think, like, knowing more is better, right? The more you know. But he says, no, the more I know, the more sorrowful I got. Because knowing more increases our sorrow as we're more aware of pain and suffering in the world around us. One writer compared this to, imagine going to a concert. Uh, let's just, yeah, let's just say it's a concert and you go and the band is not good, all right? The singer is off key. The musicians like can barely carry a tune. It's awful. And so you like, you don't enjoy it. But now let's say that with you, you brought along your friend, a professional musician. Someone who's trained and skilled in the work of music. And so as unenjoyable as it is for you, think how much worse it is for your friend who knows intimately what 
what it should sound like. He knows which notes they're missing. He knows what the melody should be, but what it's not. Because he knows more, it's more painful to him. And in the same way, the preacher says, the more we know about the world, the more we understand what it's supposed to be like and how it's meant to work, the more painful its realities become to us. So the results of this first experiment to see if wisdom could help us find satisfaction gives us the resounding answer, no. So the preacher, he's not done. He turns to experiment number two. This time, he's going to try pleasure. Maybe that will be the way he can find satisfaction. So look down again. Let's start in chapter 2, verse 1. I said in my heart, come now. I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly. Till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who'd been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity, and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. All right, so here's our second experiment. So in this section, the preacher, he moves on from wisdom and he says, I'm going to try pleasure in all its various forms. I say all its various forms because even though how pleasure looks might change from culture to culture and from time to time, at the end of the day, the world only has a limited number of ways that we pursue pleasure. I liked how one person put this. They said that life is like being on a deserted island with three board games. On one hand, there's always an option for something fun to do, right? Last night you played Monopoly. Tonight you can play another board game. I don't, anybody, what's a board game? Parcheesi, I think somebody said. You can play Parcheesi. So you've always got options, and yet you've only got the same options over and over and over and over. So, just like us, there's always options for something fun to do, but the options never change, and we can never leave the island. So as the preacher explores these different types of pleasures, keep in mind, they're really the same options that we have open to us today. So first, let's see what he tries. First, in verse 2, he tries laughter. 
right? That's a good, that's a good remedy. Find pleasure in that. So we can look to funny shows. We can watch hilarious YouTube videos. We can watch stand-up comedians to try to fill that ache in us. Or at least we hope they'll make us forget that we're not satisfied. The problem is the jokes always end. And the laughter always wears off. I mean, if you don't, if you don't believe me, look at how sad the lives of so many comedians are. How many have just destroyed their lives and even taken their own lives? So ultimately, the preacher looks at laughter and comedy and says, what's, what's the use? Then he turns to alcohol. Now, he doesn't seem to be getting drunk here. Notice he says, he's very careful to say that his heart was still guiding him with wisdom. He hasn't lost control of his faculties. He was simply enjoying some, some fine wine or a top-shelf bourbon. This was a connoisseur, not a drunk. He was looking to the finer things of life to perhaps unlock the secret of satisfaction. He thought maybe this would help him understand what was good for man to do during the few days of our lives. Apparently, it did not because he then moved on. That didn't work, so he said, all right, well now I'm going to make great works. Now he seeks satisfaction in creating things. He's looking for happiness through a combination of productivity and creativity. He builds houses. He plants vineyards. He makes gardens and parks. He plants fruit trees. He made pools of water. And if you stop and think for a moment, what does that sound like to you? There's a dwelling place with gardens and fruit trees and abundant water. This is his attempt to create Eden 2.0. But did you notice his motivation in all of it? Three times he says that he did all this for myself, for myself, for myself. He's seeking satisfaction by creating his own little version of Eden, his own paradise. He was constantly updating and improving his house. He was taking his landscaping to the next level. He was always trying to make his garden a little bigger and a little better. It was one home project after another in an attempt to make his home more satisfying. But no matter how nice it got, it was never nice enough. So in verse 7, it says he also acquired slaves and had huge herds and flocks of livestock. Now, it's very different in our day, but back then, this would have been a measure of wealth in society. To have these things would have pointed, that's how they would have measured, how well off are you? These were status symbols. So he's telling us, look, I had all the things that no one else could afford. You could just look at the fact, like when people roll up in some cars, you know right away, you've got a lot of money. Like the average person cannot afford that car. And these were the things that people just had to see his flocks, his herds, see how many slaves they had. They're like, Wow, this guy, he can afford a lot. And we see then that it wasn't just a show either. He had the money to back it up. He gathered silver and gold and the treasures of kings and provinces. In other words, he amassed a fortune. And his accounts were all very well funded. He was at the top of the Forbes wealthiest list. I mean, there was like Gates and Musk, and then he was way above them. He could afford whatever pleasures he wanted. Then we see that he used some of that money on music. 
Now, if somebody today is really into music and they've got a lot of money, they might go buy the nicest, high-end sound system you can imagine. I mean, you could just blow the neighbors away with your bass, like their, their house will literally shift. I mean, it's got just a crystal clear sound. You can hear every note with precision. But he's like, man, I don't need a high-end surround sound. I'm just going to go buy the singers. He has singers in his home. He had the pleasure of music whenever he wanted it. He could listen to what he wanted, when he wanted, because I'm like, I got the singers. And of course, we see that like so many in every age, he also sought satisfaction through sex. It says he had many concubines. Now we said earlier, I don't know if this is Solomon. Could be, maybe not. But if this is Solomon... We know from the Bible that Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. That's a thousand women. So this person is saying that, look, I had all the pleasures of this kind any person could ever want. Then in verses 9 to 11, he sums up. He says, all right, I did all this. Let me sum up my pursuit of satisfaction through pleasure. He tells us that, look, I had more and did more than anyone else before me. What we see is that this guy lived a magazine cover life. He was worthy of being featured on Wine Spectator and Better Homes and Gardens and Fortune and People, all of them. Verse 10 says that there was no pleasure he kept back from himself. He did anything and everything he wanted. I mean, can you imagine if we're honest, I think there's a part of us, all this says, man, that actually sounds awesome. Like, I don't ever have to say no. Like, anything I want, just boom, do it. And yet, when he stepped back and looked at all the pleasures he had experienced, what did he find? Verse 11. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. This man had every pleasure. And yet it wasn't enough. All he experienced and all the effort it took him to get it, he says, it's hevel. His best efforts to find satisfaction through pleasure only exposed how it was all fleeting. How it was all out of his control and mysterious. It was like trying to shepherd the wind and look at his conclusion. There's that word. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. That's what we're looking for, right? We're looking for gain. But he says there's none to be had through pleasure. Friends, the reality is that we are surrounded today by the message that one pleasure or another will satisfy you. If you just get a little more money, if you get that update to your home, if you have music at your fingertips to listen to whatever you want, whenever you want. If you can click on that website that offers you more women than Solomon had. If you can pour yourself a nice drink. If you can get the new phone or a better car or take an amazing vacation, you will be satisfied. We are surrounded by more pleasures than any people at any time in the history of the world. And yet, take it from the one who had all of them when he says he gained absolutely nothing. They didn't satisfy him. 
So, since satisfaction is not to be found in wisdom, it's not to be found in pleasure, the preacher turns to experiment number three, wise living. Look at chapter 2, verse 12 with me. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after wind. Okay. So up in our first experiment, he wanted to use, he wanted to see if wisdom could make sense of it all. Right? Or if he could find satisfaction in learning. Here he just wants to see, okay, I didn't find it through that, but is, is there any benefit at all to living wisely? Does it make any difference if I choose wisdom over foolishness? Is there? So at first he starts and his answer is, okay, yes, there is. There's a huge difference between a wise person and a fool. He says there is clearly more gain in wisdom than in folly. And he says the wise has eyes to see life rightly. But the fool walks around in a spiritual darkness. They cannot see. So he's like, that's one is better. Wisdom is clearly better than folly. And yet, the same thing happens to both. Both the wise and the fool die. No matter how wise someone may be, in the end they die just like the most foolish of people. Wise living can't save you from death. And by bringing up death, he comes back to this reality that we talked about that pops the bubble of all our imagined gain in this life. Because no matter what we think we've accomplished through our wisdom, or no matter how good of a life we've built through making wise choices in where to work, what house to build, where to, where to live, in what neighborhood, who to marry, what to do with our kids, all the wise choices we've made, one day it will end. Which is why he asks in verse 15, if that's the case, so why have I been so very wise? Why did I try so hard to figure out what the right things to do were? What made the most sense? What was the point? It's all vanity. It's all fleeting. It's all uncontrollable and impossible to understand. But then he thinks, okay, well, at least maybe, maybe the wise, those ones who live good lives, maybe they'll be remembered after they're gone. So at least they'll have their legacy, their reputation. People will remember how wise I was. But then he realizes that in the days to come, all will be long forgotten. The wise, just like the fool. This painful realization causes him to say he hated life. 
And this is one of those verses I think people come to and they're like, that's in the Bible? He hated life. Now, we got to be clear. This doesn't mean he wanted to die. What it means is that he hated the weariness of life. He hated the fact that the righteous die just like the wicked. He hates the fact that we waste our lives chasing satisfaction in so many empty pursuits. He hated the fact that this world that God made very good is now so bent and crooked, it doesn't seem like anything could straighten it. He hated it because everything done here under the sun was grievous and troubling to him. Because everywhere he looked, all was vanity. Trying to make sense of it and find satisfaction in this broken world, he said, it's like shepherding the wind. So now he's got just one more test left. So now he's thinking, okay, well, when we die, there's still one thing that's left behind, our possessions. Maybe there's satisfaction to be found there and what we leave behind. So look with me at chapter 2, verse 18. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. So after he thinks about it, he realizes that no matter how much stuff you acquire in your lifetime, no matter how much you use your wisdom and you seek pleasure and you make wise choices instead of foolish ones and you use it to accumulate stuff, you got houses and cars and clothes and and tech stuff and everything you could ever want, no matter how much you got, you can't take it with you when you die. It all gets left behind. So he says that he hated all the toil he worked and work that he invested in trying to get more and more because he had to leave it all to someone else. And he hated it because you have no control over who will get your stuff or how they will use it. Yes, you can make a will and designate who will receive certain things, but what if the person you leave that thing to just sells it to someone else? Or what if they just give it away because they don't really want it? You don't know whether they're going to take care of the things that you worked so hard your whole life to build and to buy or whether they'll just destroy it in a moment. That business you gave your life to build and leave to someone else might be run into the ground. That family heirloom that you protected and cared for might just get broken and thrown away. The money that you saved and scrimped and avoided so many things so that you could have this little nest egg to pass down, it might get left to people who will just blow it on foolish things. This is vanity. This reality, he says, is even worse 
in verses 22 and 23, for those who spent their whole lives working so hard to try to get all this stuff. Because not only did they lose the things that they accumulated, they lost all the years that they spent in stressful striving. All the sleepless nights, all the exhaustion and anxiety of working so hard just to get a little bit more, just to be able to afford that house, just to be able to upgrade that room, just to be able to get their kids into that college, just so they could get more. He said, it's vanity. The satisfaction you worked so hard to find is fleeting, out of your control, and impossible to understand. So now we come to the answer. He's searched high and low. He's explored and studied everywhere we might find satisfaction. And he's come up empty. It's not to be found in wisdom, not to be found in pleasure, not in making wise choices, and not in working to accumulate possessions. So what is the answer to this pursuit of satisfaction? Look at verses 24 to 26 with me. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy But to the sinner, he is given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. There is nothing better, he says. Let that land on you. There is nothing better than that we should eat and drink and find enjoyment in our work. It's jarring, isn't it? It feels so ordinary. Like, I came to church to hear this life-changing message, and the takeaway is, if you want joy, eat, drink, and find joy in your work. Could it really be that there is joy to be found in simple, ordinary things of everyday life, like a delicious meal and a good drink? Could it be that we can actually find pleasure and satisfaction in the same toil that the preacher hated up in verse 18? The answer is yes. How? How can that be? The answer of Ecclesiastes is we can find joy in the ordinary things of life when we receive them for what they are, the gift of God. Notice what he says in verse 24. This also, this eating and drinking and joy in your work, this also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or drink or who can have enjoyment? Then in verse 26, he says, To the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. What we're meant to see here, friends, is that life is gift, not gain. Life is gift, not gain. All the wisdom and enjoyment in life is a gift to be received, not a gain to be seized. I'm going to say that again because that's really important. All the wisdom and enjoyment in life is a gift to be received, not a gain to be seized. 
We can enjoy all the simple, ordinary things of life when we realize they're not meant to offer us the real satisfaction we're looking for. Instead, they're meant to be pointers. C.S. Lewis said, probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy, but to arouse it to suggest the real thing. So the little things we get to experience, they're not meant to fully satisfy you. They're, they're like appetizers. You're not meant to get full on an appetizer. Some of you I know eat meals at Costco eating samples. Okay, I'm not talking about that. But it's like trying to just take a little thing that's meant to just give you a taste of what's coming. To make you a little bit hungrier. Say, ooh, I am hungry after all. And so we think, oh man, that appetizer didn't fill me up. It wasn't supposed to. That's what the pleasures of this life are like. They're just tastes. They're meant to say, ooh, I, bet the, I hope there's more of this. That was good, but I would love to get my hands around something more than this. So what is the real thing that they're meant to suggest? The real source of satisfaction? God. Did you notice that in all the preacher's pursuit of satisfaction, from chapter 1, verse 12, to chapter 2, verse 23, God is conspicuously absent. There's no mention of him. But when he shows up in verses 24 to 26, that's when we find the answer to real and lasting satisfaction. We can enjoy the ordinary pleasures of life when we receive them all as good gifts of God and find our satisfaction in him alone. In verse 26, we see that for the sinner... For those who look for satisfaction on their own, apart from God, he says their lives are going to be spent just gathering and collecting all that they can, running this rat race, trying to acquire more and more and more. But in the end, they're going to leave it behind. And sooner or later, it will eventually end up in the hands of those who please God. He says a life spent like that, it's just vanity, striving after wind. But on the other hand, For those who don't try to live their lives, just getting more and more and more and more, maybe that's when we'll satisfy. He says, but for those who please God, which is only possible by trusting him, right? Because without faith, it is impossible to please God. So for those who trust God, he gives us satisfaction in him. The satisfaction that we can find nowhere under the sun, we find in him alone. And when we're satisfied in him alone, we are then free and able to enjoy the ordinary pleasures of life. See, God is not trying to rob us of joy. He's trying to give us back the joys we were meant to have. After all, we were made for these things, friends. In the Garden of Eden, do you know what we find? We find that God gives them every tree for food. We find that he gives them work to do. So in this place where God is giving the gifts of food and drink and work, it says the world was very good. But then what happened? We looked for satisfaction apart from God. Eve saw this fruit that she was not allowed to eat. and She saw that it was good for food. It was pleasing to the eye and it, was, it could make her wise. It offered food, it offered pleasure, it offered wisdom. So rather than receiving satisfaction as a gift from God, every other tree in the garden, she reached out and tried to seize it as gain. And that's what made the whole world crooked 
under the curse of sin. The creation was subjected to futility. That word futility is the same word in Greek that they use for vanity in Ecclesiastes. The creation was subjected to futility and it was put in bondage to corruption. And ever since then, we've all followed in Eve's sin, refusing to find satisfaction in God alone and working so hard to try to gain it for ourselves. And because of that, we're all stuck in the hopeless treadmill of seeking satisfaction in this life, but finding that it's all vanity. And we were all stuck there, but then Jesus came. How did Jesus come? Matthew eleven nineteen 19 says, The Son of Man came eating and drinking. And they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Eating and drinking. And you know what else Jesus came to do? To work. Jesus said repeatedly that he came to do the work the Father had given him. And when this eating, drinking, working Savior died on the cross for your sins and mine, he cried out, it is finished. His work was done. And you know what? Though it was painful beyond our imagining, Jesus found enjoyment in his toil. Because it was for the joy set before him that he endured that cross. And now... He invites each of us to get off the hamster wheel of seeking happiness and other things and come to him. To stop working ourselves to the bone for that which cannot satisfy. He says, stop spending your money for that which is not bread and stop laboring for that which does not satisfy. Instead, come to me, the bread of life and living water. And the only work God requires is for you to trust this Jesus and the work he did for you. And one day, friends, we will be with him in the true Eden 2.0, in the place that he's prepared for us. And you know what we're going to do there? We're going to eat and drink and do the joyful work of worshiping him and ruling over the new creation with him. But until then, don't miss the joy he offers to you right now in the ordinary everyday things of life, the joy in eating and drinking and working. These are not meaningless things to be discarded and thrown away in order to pursue more spiritual things. They are gifts of God to be enjoyed. So why does Ecclesiastes spend so much time showing us how everything under the sun is vanity and striving after the wind? One commentator said, Ecclesiastes is in the Bible to convince us that satisfaction comes only in God himself. The world is not enough. It doesn't do this to make us depressed or discouraged, but to drive us back to God. And so we're right back where we started, being driven by our pursuit of satisfaction. It's what drives everything we do. And the goal of Ecclesiastes is trying to steer us away from wasting our lives, looking for it in all the wrong places, and instead drive us back to the only place real satisfaction is found. Friend, you were made to be satisfied by God alone. So stop trying to find it 
anywhere else. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. For he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Would you pray with me? Father, we praise you that you are a satisfying God. That when we know you, if when we know you rightly, and we know you truly, there is nothing in our hearts that says, yeah, you're pretty great, but man, I wish this was true of you. Or I wish you were a little more like this. God, we, we find in you the fulfillment of our deepest longings. You are better than we hoped. You are greater than we can imagine. So God, would you help us to stop running after all these worthless pursuits and instead give ourselves wholeheartedly to seeking satisfaction in you? Would we spur one another on in that pursuit? Would we encourage each other, reminding each other where soul-quenching water is to be found and where soul-satisfying bread is to be eaten? God, would we delight in the simple, ordinary gifts you give us every day Would we not miss them, thinking that joy is beyond them rather than realizing it's in them? That we can have joy in the ordinary because you are with us in the ordinary. So God, help us to satisfy our souls in you and when we do, to enjoy every good and perfect gift from above. For what do we have that we didn't receive? And so we praise you, the giver, and ask to give us joy in our receiving the gift. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.